welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. The past 20 years have seen a great amount of change in the way we purchase and enjoy recorded classical music. And here at Presto Music, we've experienced this change firsthand. Back in 2001, the CD store was almost the only game in town, but now competes online with formats both new in the form of downloads and old in the form of something of a vinyl revival. One thing that hasn't changed here at Presto Music, though, is those 20 years is the boss. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Chris O'Reilly, Chief Executive Officer for Presto Music, to reflect on his 20 years at the helm, from his early days picking and packing, to today where he leads an international business that employs nearly 50 people, while retaining a strong connection to the local community here in Leamington Spa, where Presto has been a presence going back even further than those 20 years. So, for the 25th Presto Music podcast, marking 20 years of the Presto website, welcome to the show, the CEO of Presto Music, and my boss, Chris O'Reilly. Hello, Paul. Thank you for having me. I've watched you over the last 18 months or so move in and out of the podcast room talking to various people. So it's, um, it's a privilege now to be on the receiving end and in here with you uh, talking about what we've achieved over, over the years here at Presto. Can you explain how 2021 actually marks two anniversaries for Presto? Yeah, absolutely. So I joined in 2001, which is when we just had a shop and we just started the website that year. So I suppose uh, the 20-year anniversary is my joining, but more, probably more significantly is the website, which is obviously where most of our business is now. So 20 years of the website. Uh, now, we, when we started looking at this anniversary, we looked back to see how long Presto Music had been in Leamington, because it did exist as a shop before, before I came along. And we found some old newspaper cuttings from the local papers that talked about the new shop or a music shop opening in Leamington in 1986. Um, so we realised at that point that it was 35 years since that opened. Do you feel it's important that the business has its roots in what you might call an old-fashioned music shop? Yeah, absolutely. When I started, we were just a shop. There was me, there was um, a lady who left at three o'clock to pick up her kids from school. There was another lady who worked in the afternoons and there was a sassy boy. Uh, We closed on Thursdays because it was early closing day in Leamington on Thursdays, so the shop was closed completely. And that was it. And that's how I sort of learned the bread and butter of the trade, really. Found out how the record labels worked and started understanding the strategy of how recordings were made um, and series of recordings and how they sold. And so, yeah, that that face-to-face interaction with customers felt very real. And I think we've just tried to recreate that online. So it is important that we started like that, I think. Well, your first day at Presto wasn't a particularly auspicious one for the world, was it? How did you end up working at Presto on September the 11th, 2001? Uh, Wow, yeah, what a day. So I got married 10 days previously. Um, We decided to move to Birmingham. Uh, My wife was a violinist. Um, She had quite a bit of work with the CBSO at the time, so uh, she had good work. I've been in London freelancing as a conductor a little bit, mainly working in music shops in London, in Kensington Music Shop, in Chimes Music Shop in Malibone High Street, in stewarding at concert halls. Uh, I've been enjoying myself, but still trying to work out what life was going to really uh, do for me, what career I was going to end up in. How are you um, going to make a living? Absolutely, yeah. And I, loved, I, always, I knew that I loved music, so I did a music degree at university, and then I was doing a postgraduate do master's degree in musicology at Goldsmiths in London as well, at the, at the time, actually. Um, so I knew that I wanted to be involved with classical music, but I wasn't quite sure what form that would take. 
Um, so we moved to Birmingham. We got married and moved to Birmingham in the summer. And there was a job advertised in The Guardian for somebody to run this music shop. And it, so it was just a music shop. There wasn't a website then. And I said, well, I know about shops. Maybe <laughs> 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 been more printed music shops in London that I worked in, but I know about shops and I love classical music. So um, I could do that. I could run a music shop. Um, so I applied for the job, got the job. And yeah, first day was September the 11th, 2001. And it was a, it was a strange first day, as you can imagine. Um, and of course, we didn't have mobile. I didn't have a mobile phone that had internet back then. I'm not sure mobile phones with internet existed. We had a computer in the store, which had a dial-up connection, so we could um, we could go onto it and check the news when we heard what was going on. But yeah, it was a strange day. I remember being visited by uh, a representative from Universal Music, one of our bigger suppliers. Uh, Universal owned uh, Decca and Deutsche Grammophon, and back then Philips as well was also still making recordings at that time and so yeah he came in and he told us what was happening because he'd heard it on the radio I guess in the car and I didn't believe him I thought it was a joke it was just sounded so surreal the stories that were talking about planes flying into buildings it was um so yeah I'll never forget that day what were your initial ambitions for the company did you always feel that Presto could go global uh, no, <laughs> in short, um, it was a shop. My ambitions was to try and make the shop survive. When I, when I started, the shop was losing money. Morris Millwood, who'd bought the business um, earlier that year uh, because he wanted the CD shop to survive, he'd, he used the shop to buy his CDs, uh, very much in preparation for, for live music. He, he was a very keen concert goer. And remains so. And remains so, absolutely. He just celebrated his 90th birthday. Um, but yeah, he, um, so he'd go to the Glyndebourne, he'd go to the CBSO concerts, and he always felt, and he's quite right, that if you know the repertoire, you enjoy the concert more. So he'd always make sure that before the concert came along, he'd, just, he'd call it doing his homework, <laughs> he'd buy the CDs, he'd make sure he'd listen to them a few times. If it was something sung, he'd obviously read the text or the synopsis and understand what the story was about, what it was trying to communicate. And so he, he valued the shop in Leamington to buy a CD. So when the shop was threatened with closure, he was persuaded by his local friends to buy it, for it to survive. Um, but I joined, therefore, in 2001, quite soon after he bought it. But he was very clear that the shop was losing money. And if we couldn't turn this corner, this was going to be a job that lasted six months. <laughs> and, then I, and it was just fair. I, I'd left my jobs in London, but, you know, I was happy to take the risk on that, really. But no, so the plan A was survive, um, try stop losing money. Um, we're, we're fortunate in that because he, he, he'd had his career, he founded a market research company, he'd made his money. So it was a passion for him, music. And so he didn't need the shop to be profitable particularly. He needed it not to lose money, but plan A was break even. So there weren't too many massive targets from the off. But um, yes, that was plan A. <laughs> Well, now, obviously, most of the business is online. Was there a particular moment when you realised that the future was going to be in e-commerce? Uh, yes, probably, although not immediately. So Morris had put in place the website before I started. He worked with another local, a local man called David Ferrer, who's a clarinetist, is a clarinetist, still plays locally. And David had a background in IT, and so Morris said, I need you to build me a website because this is where it's going to be. Now... This came off the back of the dot-com bubble, uh, which obviously during the late 90s, uh, internet businesses, e-commerce businesses and, and tech companies generally had gathered a lot of value. And then in 2000 or so, um, they burst. And a lot of companies lost a lot of value and companies <laughs> disappeared. 
And so my saw this and thought, let's start a website. <laughs> so it was, a, so it was quite a, an unusual timing in that respect. But he just saw the potential that although obviously they had been overvalued before, this was gonna, wasn't going to go away. Um, so the website was started and I think we'd had two or three orders in August before I joined in September. And then we had another two or three orders to get us to the end of the year. So it started very slowly um, and we weren't going to cut even by selling a few CDs on the website. So the first few years, it was very much, what can we do in the shop? What can we, how can we build the shop, build the profile of the shop, increase the range or um, offer a better service, more great offers. And, uh, and that was where we're going to be. And I suppose the... Uh, the e-commerce side, it, took a, it really took two or three years, really, 2003, 2004, when it started to become meaningful. And we thought, yeah, this is actually, we need to, you know, we were spending a lot of time on it already, but we need to keep spending a lot of time on this. And we need to now start employing people to work on this, rather than people to work in the shop. And then when they've got an hour free, go and pack up some CDs <laughs> and take them out of the post office. So, um, yeah, so it took a few years, I'd say, for e-commerce to really realise itself. And we can sample the first uh, CD purchased on the Presto Music website. Here's Faber's first symphony. Here's the rondo performed by the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, conducted by John Georgiadis. I gather initially there was some discussion about how large the product range should be, with just titles that have received critical acclaim being offered for sale. That's right. So we started with the 500 Penguin Rosette winners. I think there were two um, motivations really to that. One was it takes quite a long time to list products on a website. Um, there weren't product feeds or anything, so it really was a job of somebody sitting down typing in the names of the composers and the works and the performers uh, and how much they were going we were going to sell them for. So yeah, getting a limited range was desirable. But the other thing I think also was making sure they, they were good recordings. And I remember when I grew up, I'd go up to H&B in Oxford Street and I'd sit, in, sit down in the basement it was and I'd pick up the gramophone, latest gramophone magazine, the penguin guide, and I'd thumb through looking for recommendations. And of course, you'd talk to people. You'd go up to the counter, you'd talk to the people in there who are all passionate about music. So you'd get your recommendations that way. So listing stuff online we needed to make sure people still were able to buy the good recordings. So we, so the dual motivation, I suppose, of only listening to the really good ones and something to get us started. Yeah, even going so far as just offering a single version of a particular work. Yeah, yeah, we did. Well, of course, if you have more than one version, then you actually make it harder for people to so choose. <laughs> so you say, this is the, if you want Lohengrin, this is the recording to buy. Was bringing in the editorial, which you later did, a way of sort of squaring this circle between offering a wide and at times bewildering product range and curating and advising customers of what you thought was the most interesting releases? 
I suppose it probably was, although it probably wasn't thought through as a strategy quite like that. I've sort of come to realise later that I was always quite entrepreneurial in my approach and spirit. And so I do things because they seem like a good idea. And we started sending, I think it was we started, around 2007 it was, we'd started sending out a weekly newsletter because people, when they bought something, would sign up to the newsletter. And so we'd send them an email and say, these are, these are some information for you. And then we started thinking, well... It can't just be a list of products. It has to have some introduction. So I started writing something to go before. And it wasn't always about new recording. I sometimes wrote about whether you should play Bach on the harpsichord or the piano. Quite philosophical, general comments <laughs> like that. I don't know what I was thinking, to be honest with you. But it just sort of emerged out of that, really. And then, of course, people, events started happening. So I remember um, Rostropovich, the great Russian cellist, died I think quite soon after we started, so I thought, okay, well, I need to write something about Rostropovich. He's one of my heroes. I'm a cellist. He's one of my heroes. So um, I had to write something there. So then the obituaries came in and then award seasons, Gramophone Awards, BBC Other Awards, other awards came up. But also he suddenly started having a, a sort of series of, of articles and things happening. So we just sort of grew from there, really. It just grew, grew organically. It did, really, yeah. And it's only more recently, I suppose, or I say recently, uh, it took a few years, I say, before we decided that what we need is a recording of the week that we'll write a substantial review on. And then we'd have other articles like interviews and summaries of things that have happened and then anything news that were these like obituaries or anniversaries as well. And that way you have the best of both worlds. You have the product range of everything if you want, if you want it, and also the things that we think are worth, uh, worth your time and uh, spending some time to get to know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Can you remember some important titles or favourite releases from the early days of the company? Yeah, so... Um, this is an interesting one. Um, I remember when we walked in, we had a little jazz... When I walked into the old shop, there was a jazz section. It was around the corner. Um, it was a bit out of the way. I don't know if that was delivered, but that's where it was. Um, we had a lot of ECM titles in there, because ECM was obviously an important part for classical and for jazz. And I remember people coming in and buying Officium, Jan Garbrek and the Hilliard Ensemble. And I hadn't come across this recording before. And we just seemed to sell so many of it. I couldn't quite believe it. But that, so that happened, and that kept happening for a number of years, people buying this recording. I think they'd heard it on Classic FM or other channels, and it's so immediately appealing. Well, we can have a quick sample of Officium featuring Jan Garbrek and the Hilliard Ensemble on ECM. And then, of course, new releases started coming out, and some of those I got really quite attached to. I remember the, the Richard Hickox London Symphony came out in that first autumn that I joined, um, which is a wonderful recording, and so sad that he wasn't able to complete that Vaughan Williams cycle on Shandos. I remember the Takash Quartet, the second volume of their Beethoven String Quartet series came out that year as well, uh, which was 
fabulous. And I remember thinking, oh, I can't wait for the, they've done the early ones. These are the middle ones. The late <laughs> ones. The late yeah, ones, yeah. <laughs> so I remember looking forward to that. And I think it was a couple of years later that one came out and that, that's gone on to be regarded as one of the great cycles now. Um, yeah, so I do remember specific things. And I still recognise when I'm walking around shops or looking um, at magazines and you see a cover, you think, oh, God, that cover. I remember it takes that you cover. back. <laughs> it does, yeah, I remember buying. You know, I've stuck a lot of those into boxes. <laughs> yeah, and of course, at that stage, I was buying stuff in as well. So the, the salesperson from EMI would come round and say, this is a new recording we've got. How many would you like to buy? And I'd have to say, oh, well, um, <laughs> let's start with 10 or let's have 50. It's really good. Or oh, I'm not sure. I think we might struggle with that one. Just, just, give us a, just give us a couple. We'll always reorder it if we need to. So, yeah, that was, that was very much my job back then, was looking at the CDs and deciding what I thought would sell. And it's a way of introducing titles that you might have missed, didn't think might have been very interesting. Loads of copies sell out, sell, and you think, oh, I might like to listen to this myself. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, no, it was very much like that, actually. Yeah, and people would come in, you'd, you'd find out your mistakes quite quickly as well, and people came in and asked for a recording, and you'd think, oh, bugger, I remember seeing that one, I didn't, I didn't order it. <laughs> yeah, or, or you'd sell out on the, on the release date, and you think, oh, only got five. I should have got fifty. Got that one wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we still get them wrong sometimes. We're quite good. I don't do it anymore, so it's obviously much better now. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> but um, we, we try. You know, we we use we try and predict what will sell based on pre-orders and. Is that perhaps more more of an art than a science? It is an art. Yeah, and we still get surprised. And then something gets an amazing review in a newspaper or picked up on you know. Uh, record review on BBC Radio 3 on a Saturday morning and that sort of um, sales launch through the roof from that so yes we still get caught out um, but we try and have enough stock <laughs> most of the time I'm not selling this very well am I? <laughs> well the shop has always sold much more than CDs has the presence of the shop been the driver behind the introduction of the sheet music and instrument departments on the website? Uh, yeah it has really um, mainly I'd say because we had stock <laughs> um, and we thought so we, ha we were selling CDs online for quite a long time we actually started putting sheet music in the shop in 2002 we were, the shop moved the year after I joined and we added sheet music and instruments to the mix but it was, it was many years later that we added them online and that had a whole lot of new challenges and that's the sheet music catalogue is immense there's like a million titles it's incredible <laughs> um, and it's it's hugely admirable really because the publishers have such they feel so responsible for the composers, represented the composers and their works, that they go to amazing lengths to keep titles available. If somebody wants to buy this piece of sheet music of this song um, or this piece, then their job is to make it available and to buy it, even if it doesn't sell for another 12 months. And you think, well, commercially, it it's, can't really work very well, you know, keeping something in stock that sells so infrequently. But it's wonderful that the publishers feel this responsibility and it's a great credit to them that it's not a commercial game. It's a make, keeping music available for people. I guess you had all this experience on hand in Leamington about sheet music and instruments, so it seems a shame to limit that to Leamington. It, it seemed an obvious expansion, yeah. And having them in stock in the shop meant that we could list those first and it meant that people, when they came across them on the website, would be able to get them quickly because they're in stock. So, yeah, it seemed an obvious thing with sheet music and then the same with instruments and accessories really which is we only put on uh, last year um, we put those on the same thing having them in stock it seems a good starting point and then growing the catalogue from there Do you feel customers are more demanding in the quality of the e-retail experience than 20 years ago when it started customers may have seen it a bit of a novelty buying online but now demands are much higher in terms of web design price and delivery 
Yes. So 20 years ago, our website was fairly basic, I'd say. Um, there was a description of the product. I don't think we had images to start with. It was literally just the title and a price, and you bought it. That was, that was normal back then, I suppose. I think the expectations are, are very high now, driven by some of the big people. And sitting on the delivery side, the expectations of ordering something and getting it very fast um, and often free is now an expectation, which is obviously the free element is difficult because it costs a lot of money to ship something. It costs a lot of money to ship it around the world. We charge for delivery and we try and break even on it. Now, we don't break even on it. We haven't broken even in the last 18 months, particularly when charges have gone um, up quite a lot because of the COVID reasons and less planes in the air. That's all been passed on. We've tried to cushion that blow, really. So we've lost quite a bit of money on postage over the last 18 months ago, but our overwhelm is to cut even. In terms of the e-commerce experience, yes, it has gone up, although I'm still surprised sometimes how poor I find the experience on some sites that you think should be better. So I think there's still room to make a better e-commerce experience in a lot of places. It's transformed from being alternative to being, from a lot of people, their primary source, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And it's so easy to go on, to look at something. You can do it whenever, every time of day that day or night that suits you. And the things that we, we put on, like the ability to listen to sound samples or something, yes, you could go into a record shop and you could go up to the counter and you'd say tonight, would it be possible to listen to this CD, please? <laughs> and he'd either put it on the speakers or he'd put it on, they'd have a sort of a playing listening station. Booth. Listening booth, that's the word, yeah, where you could listen to it. You then felt bad if you listened to 10 seconds. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't like this one. Can I listen to that one? So, But the fact on, yeah, on, the, on the websites now where you can click around and listen to all sorts of stuff. And of course, we put all the citations from reviews and awards on. So you really can compare recordings and in many ways, much better than you get in a shop. It doesn't replace the personal approach that a good shop person can offer you in terms of their knowledge and advice and guidance. But there's a lot of pros, yeah, to browsing online. But what will you get on Presto, you get the guides as well from the, from our editorial team. That's right. So, yeah, the editorial team, yeah, we do. We write a lot of content ourselves and we do all the interviews with artists to try and um, try and help artists communicate why they've recorded something in particular. What is it they're trying to say? Uh, and then we and customers can judge whether we think they've managed it or not. But we try and understand what they're, what they're trying to get across in the interviews, I think, primarily. Well, although the majority of sales are now through the website, do you feel it's important to keep the physical shop thriving? And if so, why? Yeah, I think it's massively important. I think a town needs a music shop. I think a town is a better place if it has a music shop, it has a bookshop, it has a lot of independent shops generally, makes a good town in my view. So I feel a huge responsibility to keeping that going in Leamington and I feel very lucky to live in Leamington and have <laughs> shops like that. Leamington's a great town, it's got lots of independent shops. I think we're, we are quite lucky where we are and yeah, I hope, I hope other towns can have the same in time. I think there's always more you can do with the shop. There's more we can do. We've got plans. Hopefully it'll come to fruition over the next few months and years to try and do more, you know, to help people, help people with their journey into music, really, to either discover recordings to listen to or to find instruments to play and learn to, you know, make music or just appreciate it, read about it or understand why it's so important and get an experience out of it. So, yeah, I feel very responsible for that and I think the shop plays a key part. Well, that's for the previous 20 years, but how are the company's values helping it to adapt to the changing way music is consumed? And how are they helping to guide the company through hopefully the next 20 years? We see our mission as enriching people's lives 
through music because we think music's so powerful. It can change lives. It can certainly enrich and enhance lives. Um, so helping people discover music, I think, is why we're here and why we do it. And that can be music to listen to or, say, music to play um, or music to read about, if you like books. But, yeah, that's why we're here. So everything we do really is trying to achieve that. So we're conscious, for example, that a lot of our customers buy CDs. CDs are great, really reliable format, good quality audio, really easy to use, really long-lasting, transportable, um, which is brilliant. But we can't escape the fact that CDs in the industry generally have probably had their heyday and they are declining um, everywhere. So conscious of this, we started things like Presto CD, where we manufacture CDs one by one so that people who want to buy the CD can still buy the CD. And that's, that's worked very well. We sell thousands of them. Uh, and you get the whole booklet, the inlay, and you can read about it in the same way you would a factory press CD. And because it's a digital format of CD, the audio is identical to that of a factory CD. And that's fine. That works. But again, cars don't have CD players anymore. <laughs> Computers don't have CD drives anymore. Uh, and so there is going to be a time post-CD, really, where people still need, want to listen to music. So we're thinking, how do we fit into that? And it looked like that was downloads for quite some time. And we obviously we built a, a significant download offering. And downloads have obviously got the, an advantage over CDs in that the audio can be higher quality than CD. So if you've got the speakers and the equipment to listen, then a download is actually a very good solution because it's even better quality than CD. It's closest as possible to what you get alive and what the artist, you know, the truth of what the artist is trying to portray. But looking beyond that, because downloads are also on decline, of course, um, there's the streaming world happen. The streaming experience is, is tough on a lot of services for classical where they're built really around the pop model of artist album track. And obviously in classical music, we've got uh, works, we've got lots of different composers on the same album. We've got lots of artists on some tracks. Some are more important than others. If there's a, you know, obviously a solo disc, um, the soloist is very important than the individual members of the orchestra, but everyone is important and everyone needs to be credited and acknowledged that way. So we're sort of working out how we fit into that future, which is a streaming future. And we've done some things, as people will see, with the My Library, where you can stream things that you've bought from us already on CD or download and you can stream them on your phone or you can airplay them to your to your amplifier if you have that and we're looking at the next step of that really to make it easy for people to listen to music in whatever form they like on their systems at home or in the car or while traveling um, we're completely agnostic we don't mind whether people buy the CD or the download we just want them to hear the music yes. we're a music shop not a CD shop per se yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And if any, I suppose if anything, we'd say, the only thing we, I feel sometimes a responsibility to focus on is quality, audio quality, because I think people should listen to stuff in the best sound they can. And I suppose that's, in, as I mentioned a second, that's almost an argument against CDs, because CDs are good, but they're not the best. Well, um, they're restricted, aren't they? There's a red book format, and that's it. There's no better or no worse. Exactly, yeah. But, um, but of course, the human ear is also infallible. And so... <laughs> And as we get older, it's hard to it's harder to hear the detail sometimes. And of course, you need to really appreciate high quality. You need a, a, a good system and an expensive system. And and like anything else, I suppose we don't want to be the preserve of people with money. We want music should be available to everybody. Um, that's both 
listening to it and making it as making music as well. So we need to find solutions that will allow us to get music into people's homes on whatever budget and however much money they've got to spend and want to spend on music. And in a way, the classical market has somewhat lagged behind perhaps the pop market. So you've been able to see those trends in other forms, like say pop and rock, and you've been able to see where to take classical with that. Yeah, that's right. And that's in a way that's quite an, it's been quite an advantage actually to see what's happening, see how quickly the curve is moving. And what one thing I've learned over the last 20 years is everyone predicts the decline of things quicker than they actually yes. happen. The CD was supposed to be dead years ago. Um, vinyl was dead and buried, but it's <laughs> back. Um, so yeah, so everything happens slower and not as you're expecting. And we've got to say, we've gone through the vinyl, cassette, CD, download, streaming, where that's sort of where the industry is now. It doesn't mean that's going to be where the industry is going to remain. In the past, there's always been something else coming up. So, and we don't know what that is yet. But as long as we stick to our premise of the music is what it doesn't really matter what it is, we'll respond to that. I mean, classical has lagged behind other genres from taking up streaming and, and, and digital formats generally, really. But it is different different countries, of course, because we sell all over the world. We see some quite different take-ups of CD versus download in some countries. Now, in the US, for example, we see significantly more downloads than CDs, whereas in the UK, it's the opposite way around at the moment for us. With some of the luxury packaging that some labels are doing now, the CD may actually become perhaps a boutique product. Yeah, it's very true, Paul. Uh, very true. And of course, this, if it's something that's sung particularly, they, you do probably want the words to follow. And yes, you can have the words digitally through a digital booklet, which you can then read on your iPad or your phone. But you maybe don't want to do that. You'd rather actually have them printed out to read through. Maybe, you know, you may want to sit there and look at the record cover. Uh, I suppose this is a parking, you know, thinking of vinyl, particularly the beautiful big covers that look so good and you can think, wow, and it felt like something amazing, which the physical product offers that downloads don't offer. Um, and even, I think however good the streaming service is for classical, and we hope that ours, and we hope that the information that on my library is pretty good, but there are always details which you can find in the booklet. Like, when was this recorded? Okay, it's recorded in the Berlin Philharmonie on the 7th and the 8th of January 2001. And you can find that information almost always in the booklet, but given that information through a streaming service is tough, I'd say. You could put it there, but then if the more information you put in, the harder it is to see the, the, the phrases, see the wool from the horse, <laughs> door from the... Um, there's a phrase there. Um, so, yeah getting the right information with the important information up front and then the would you say it is perhaps metadata and things like that that are the biggest challenge when it comes to classical music yeah i'd say so the display of metadata um and it's very much a choice as to what to display and what not to display so i say if you go over the top and display every piece of information you have it just comes too much you know if you, if you were to list on an opera recording every singer with their role and their voice type and because you wanted a really rich experience you listed their date of birth their <laughs> premiere uh, how many recordings they've made to that point it would just be a, a minefield so the, you know the key information you want is who are the main characters and what roles are they singing and then you you want the rest available so it's choosing i suppose what order to put stuff in how much to put on the first screen and then how much to keep for the mm -hmm. for later on the about metadata 100 <laughs> percent. and knowing those things is why it still needs the human touch perhaps yeah, yeah, I'd say so, uh, very much. That's something that 
we're fortunate about here in that almost everybody, in fact, everybody who works in the editorial and product data side is passionate about music, classical music or jazz music. We've got um, two people in our jazz team who are passionate about jazz music, and they therefore understand what the important things are. Um, and I say, so it's not always going to be the same. Um, and it could be different on the same work, depending on what the coupling with it or or whether it's the whole work or just a part of it. We, although we have sort of style guides and rules that we try and follow, there's often a lot of uh, individual what would be best. Things like arrangements, you know, when something was originally written for the flute and piano, it's arranged for violin and piano. How do you display that? Is that a different work or is it the same work in an arrangement? And if so, do you credit the arranger? <laughs> is that important or not really? Um, and it is. A, I think it's a personal thing. It depends on... Depends on the the individual situation, really, to make a good call. Well, aside from streaming, any other exciting developments in the pipeline? So we launched some. Um, uh, as I mentioned, we launched the instrument accessories department last year, and that feels very much like a start of that. In that we put some stuff online, so it's available to buy. Um, but there's a lot to do on that. We've spent twenty years on the on the recording side, building up the product data, the experience, all the listings, the reviews, the award citations, and, and, the, and the whole sort of the schema, the infrastructure of how the website works and how you get from one place to another. And so Instrument Accessory, we've really just put some stuff on with some listings, and we will off, like everything else, we'll, we'll send it out really quickly, really reliably, at a good price, package it really well. So all that's great, but there's, all, there's obviously a lot more that we need to do now to get that up to the level of the printed music and the CDs in terms of, you know, if you want to, you want to buy some new violin strings, which one should you buy? How do you choose? Because there's hundreds of them, hundreds of choices. So helping people make good decisions, I think is going to be part of how that develops. So that's going to be a big part of us. Um, the streaming's obviously, um, as I mentioned, something we're working on. That's, going to, that's a big project for the next few years. But broadly, it was remaining true to what we're doing, really. She was just telling people about things we think are really good. <laughs> it's a very simple recipe, really. Well, the past 18 months has been an extraordinary period for everybody, but especially the classical music recording industry. How has the lockdown impacted the type and amount of recordings that we have available for sale? So I'd say that it's remained pretty strong. I feared it could be a lot worse. There has been a change in what we're seeing in terms of the repertoire. There's less orchestral, there's been less opera, more either solo, really solo instrumental stuff has been. There's a lot of solo, Stephen listed as solo cello disc, there's been a lot of Stephen Huff solo piano discs, which are great, by the way, <laughs> uh, but there's been more than I think would have happened if those artists had been busier touring, I suppose. So that's sort of inevitable. Uh, probably also more singer and piano than previously as well, but there's still some good orchestral recordings. We've started our awards, I think shortlisting for our awards this year and looking through, you know, the first job is to try and choose 100. <laughs> um, and that's hard. There's well over 100 of good things, you know. I look through the list, you know, and I see in Osmo events because Marla 10, you know, I think, that's, you know, it's a brilliant recording. And huge credit to the labels who've managed to keep us supplied with great releases. They've done an incredible job. Absolutely, it's been yeah. They've done a brilliant job, um, and it's been. I can't I have my thoughts go to them because it's been so tough for them, um, as well as artists as well. Of course, they haven't been able to go, have as many concerts as they'd normally have. But yeah, but the labels have been tremendous, really. I'd say. Well, you mentioned there the Presto Awards. When did the awards start, and how are the top discs chosen? So, 
I think the award started in <laughs> 2014, officially. Um, but if I look back through the editorials before that, you know, I often did something towards the end of the year saying, oh, these are my favourite discs from the year. <laughs> so in a way, they started before that. Um, but like the other editorials, some of it's sort of grown organically rather than... I think uh, it has, actually, yeah. And we only formalised them, I say, maybe... Two th- I think it was 2014, we started sort of saying, these are what we think are the 10 best recordings of the year. But the process uh, as to how it works is we sort of say, OK, what are the best 100? Um, and there's a team, I think there's five of us, um, this year, you included, Paul, of course. And we each put forward things that we think should be considered for the top 100. And we have been, we've been obviously listening to them throughout the year and we've been writing about them in records of the week. We've been interviewing the artists and reading each other's thoughts throughout the year on things. So there's, there's not normally a lot of surprises. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the first job is to get down to 100. And then from those 100, you, you normally can see that there's a I think we always think worry that there's a good representation of genres in there, and then we think, what if we get a hundred and they're all solo piano? Um, yeah, well, that's been especially been a concern this year with that influence of the solo and the singing. Yeah, releases. and it has, and I think it will. We haven't we haven't quite finalised the hundred yet, um, but I think it will be actually more solo piano and singer singer piano based than it has but there'll still be plenty of orchestral stuff and operas in there as well um so i don't think you have to worry about that there will be a good choice from there we have to go down to 10 a couple of years ago we thought should we have a recording of the year or should we have 10 recordings of the year and we decided to have 10 we thought it's too hard to choose one um how do you compare a Mahler symphony to a solo piano disc to um so we thought let's have 10 outstanding recordings of the year and that 10 equally things and so yeah so we go from 100 to 10 with a lot of discussion (laughs) argument debate um all good natured of course yeah (laughs) it happens over the course of a few weeks if i really think you need to go away and listen to that one again (laughs) i think you've missed quite how good that is um so that will happen um and that is happening it's starting to happen now people are putting in pictures for certain things there'll be compromises it will be the 10 that collectively we think are the best which will come out on top One of the things I've enjoyed is that it's not straightjacketed by orchestral or chamber. It's just the 10 best discs in all formats. Absolutely. I suppose we we are conscious of trying to get, again, a mix into the 10, but so far it's just happened naturally. We haven't had to do it. And I think it was this year because there's there's a couple of real stunners (laughs) in, you know, the orchestral, the opera world that's maybe been less represented in the studio. So, um, yeah, I think we'll be fine. Any, Any discs you feel will be in the running, Chris, for the awards? Um, yes, <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, of course, but um, and there's always late, late attenders. There's this that came out in January that feels like ages ago, and this that came out um, last Friday that feel like very recently. Um, but I have to have been enjoying Sabina Devaye's disc of Bark and Handle this week, um, so I'm certainly going to be making a pitch to get that one included. Perhaps. And we can sample Pianjo La Sotte Mia from Handel's Giulio Cesare from that disc.
Well, I was a customer long before I worked here and I'm hoping that our customers will continue to support us as we go through to the next 20 or even 35 years. My thanks to Chris O'Reilly there and thanks to Matt Groom for producing and thanks to you for listening. Thank you, Paul.